If you have your Bibles, please get them open to Galatians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be a black one in the seat back in front of you. Get to page 1033. You'll be with us in Galatians chapter 4. I want to thank you all so very much for being here. I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. And uh, it's, great, it's great to see uh, so many uh, returning faces. We love holidays when the people come back and visit. It's great to see uh, so many regular faces and new faces. If you're a guest, I just want to second what Matt said. We're so thankful that you're here. We know how hard it is to try something new. And so if you would at least do us the favor of stopping by the welcome desk on your way out, we have a gift for you for coming, uh, just, for, just for going through that uh, rigmarole. And it's an honor that you would just come here and, and tempt this. And we believe the Lord led you here for his reasons this morning and that it won't be by accident. And so we're grateful you're here. There are two things I want to make mention of, right? Uh, this is not an upsell, but I'm, I'm glad that you're here. But there's a couple other things that's going to happen today that, that we'd love for you to be a part of. The first is it would be right after this service. And so we're going to wrap up this service. I'll around 10.30, don't hold me to that, right? Um, but we're going to wrap it up around 10.30, and then at 10.45, we specifically put that time, so it'd be between our two services today, uh, we're going to have a baptism service in which an entire family, uh, mom and dad and two daughters are getting baptized today. It's an amazing story of God's grace. And so uh, we set that time so that you know, whatever service you went to, you would be able to, to be a part of that and witness that and cheer them on. And so if you could just hang out for a little while, like just visit with people hang out for just a little bit and at 1045 you get to witness that and that'll be great. And then we know there's all kinds of family commitments and everything going on and people who can't be here but if you are available we'd love to have you back at 7 o'clock tonight for our candlelight service uh, to celebrate uh, once again just Jesus's uh, arrival, his incarnation is coming to us and so that'll be it tonight at 7 o'clock in this room. We'd love to have you be a part of that. But other than that we're grateful that you're here. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer and then we'll get this message started. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Uh, we're thankful for the fact that you came to us, Lord, and came to us in, in such a humble way that you came as a baby. And so it's fitting, God, that this service was started by children, uh, that, it was, that we were led by children into worship of the one who came as a child to save and redeem us. And so we pray as we look into your scriptures this morning, God, that you, uh, you would speak loudest this morning. God, your word would not return to your void, that you'd push aside me and the distractions of life, and you'd just take over this time. And that you'd find in us, God, a room full of people who are open, submissive, surrendering hearers to what you have to say today. Get the glory from all this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the state of Indiana, and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is kind of an, an institution in the state, right? It's one of the first things that, that people think of when they think of the state of Indiana. And every year it hosts uh, the 500 race on the last Sunday in May, and they've added more events over time, the Brickyard 400, kind of the, the MotoGP race, the road race, all those things. And this past August, I actually got the chance to play uh, the, the Brickyard Crossing, which is a golf course that 14 of the holes are, are right outside the track, and then you actually go underneath the track. Track, and then you play four holes inside the oval. And I was kind of geeking out. I was taking pictures and videos. I was like, man, this is one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. And I got home and showed it to my wife and she just didn't get it, right? She's not from Indiana. Uh, she just didn't get how, I was like, you don't understand how cool this is. Like, it's, it's just a place that, that just kind of holds some kind of awe and reverence in the state. But what you might not know, and I was actually stunned to find out, is that 74 people have actually perished, have died at Indianapolis Motor Speedway over the years. Drivers, pit crew workers, fans, they've all died in the name of just having a race. 
Scott Goodyear was a longtime driver on that circuit, and he was asked how he mentally dealt with the reality that people die doing what he does, and this was his answer. He said, when a crash happens, you don't go look at what happened. You don't watch the film on TV. You don't talk about it. You don't deal with it. You don't think about it. You just pretend that it never happened. Is that psychologically healthy? Probably not. But, I, but what I found is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway not only encourages this approach, but they embrace it themselves. Because whenever there's a crash at IMS, there's a crew on standby that goes out that evening as soon as racing is done, and they, they, they repair the wall, they paint over everything, they replace the turf, they make sure that any driver who shows up the next day will not be able to find out where that crash was. In fact, Inside of their museum, there's no mention of anyone who's lost their lives at IMS. In fact, they would take issue with me saying this morning that 74 people have died there. They would say that's not true. Because despite the fact that they have a medical facility, they have a standard operating procedure in which no one is allowed to be declared dead at IMS. They are taken by ambulance to Methodist Hospital a few miles away, and then and only then can someone be declared dead. And so their official stance is that no one has ever perished at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Now, is that dishonest? Sure. Is it insulting? Yes, especially to the 74 families. But maybe it's necessary to keep putting on the event. Maybe it's necessary, maybe that deniability is needed for drivers and fans to keep coming every year. But you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't change reality. And reality is hitting hard for many in our midst right now. It seems to often be that way in December, doesn't it? But it hits hard because we often live our lives the same way the Indianapolis Motor Speedway operates. Where we block out and ignore the most undeniable, inevitable reality of our earthly life, that it will end. And it's too much to think about, and it's too much to handle, so we just push it away. And we paint over the crashes, and we fix the walls, and we find ways to cope. But what none of them do is none of them change reality. And it seems that it's only when reality hits that we finally, wisely ponder. When we say goodbye to a loved one, and the sting is felt and is real, and people that we love go to a beyond to never, ever return here again. And yet something deep within us knows, even in that moment, that it is not over. There's an undeniable sense in us that knows and believes that there is something beyond here, and that something is so much more than nothing. And the Bible actually has an explanation for this. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has made everything appropriate in his time, and he has also put eternity into their hearts. That's the Bible saying that God has set the need, the desire, the longing, the belief for eternity deep within us. Despite there being absolutely no physical evidence of this existing anywhere, no one has ever went there and come back to us. And yet the evidence for this truth in Ecclesiastes 3 is, is overwhelming, right? Every religion, every civilization, every society, that's in, in all of recorded history, all make mention of an afterlife or beyond. Even the staunchest of atheists, right, would hold to the belief that they just don't know. Well, around 2,700 years ago, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah who received a message from the Lord, and he faithfully shared what he had received. And we read it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and we've hung our entire month's teaching on this verse. In which the prophet writes, A child will be born for us. 
A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And all month long, we've been breaking down each one of those titles and unpacking their meanings. And one of those four titles, Eternal Father, is not just our focus today, but it's also a clue. In fact, beyond a clue, it's more of a declaration from the God of everything that someone, someone lasting, someone bigger, someone greater, someone from the beyond itself, someone from eternity would actually enter into our realm. And 700 years later, the prophecy was fulfilled in a little town called Bethlehem, and everything forever was changed. And if you've ever wondered what is beyond this life, or if you've never prepared ever for the reality that that your earthly life will end, or if you just desperately need reminded again that since eternity came to us, eternity is ours in Jesus Christ this morning. Whatever the reasons, I'm glad you're here today. Because we're going to see once again from God's word of what God made possible for us by coming to us. He opened up for us a connection, a family, a relationship, and a life that extends beyond everything you've ever known, everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever touched or experienced, and all of it can be yours in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite Neva McFarland up to read today's passage for us. She's going to be reading for us Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Just happens to be the verse uh, the kids recited for us as well. But if you are physically capable, would you please stand with Neva to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning? Morning. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Thank you, Neva. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles there, open there to Galatians 4. And I first want to just refer back to that, that passage in Isaiah 9 that we're, we're framing our series on. And all month long, we've been breaking down those four titles, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and then next week, Travis will be unpacking the Prince of Peace for us, okay? But uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. To have that, the, the, the Hebrew there actually means amazing, mind-blowing wisdom, right? And we talked about how the wisdom of Jesus Christ was unmatched and is unmatched. And if we want to be wise, then we get to know Jesus' truth. We, get to, we expose ourselves to his wisdom. And then, as he says in Matthew 7, we put into practice what he says. And then last week, Brandon unpacked for us mighty God, how Jesus was fully God when he came in human form, and how, how we as his image bearers have been cursed by sin, and God himself came to us to reconcile us back to him. And today's title, the eternal father, right, is the one in Isaiah mind that brings the most confusion of all four of them. So I want to start just by looking at what does this title mean? And the confusion comes from what is a very clear teaching in the scriptures that still remains kind of challenging to wrap your mind fully around. And the clear teaching is this. The Bible tells us that God is one. Our God is one. And yet he eternally exists in three distinct persons. Now, 
please hear me, persons is not a perfect word there, but it's the best word we have in our language for it, okay? So God is one God. They're, they're united, right? But they, he exists in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is why you see some interesting language in the Bible. Like in Genesis chapter 1, uh, it says a singular God says, then God said, not the gods, God said, let us Make man in our image and in our, language, our likeness, right? A singular God is using plural forms because he exists in three distinct persons. And Jesus Christ is God the Son, right? He is the eternal God sent by the Father to take on human form, to become fully man, to live a sinless life, and to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of those who believe in him and reconcile us back to God, one of the simplest ways I ever heard to express was by Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg. I love his accent. But he said, there was a time in which Jesus was fully God and not yet in human form. But there was never a time in which he was not fully God, even when he was in human form. And so in understanding that, the question is often asked about Isaiah 9. If this prophecy is about Jesus, who is God the Son, then why is he given the title of Eternal Father? Well, the clearest explanation for this is that Isaiah is not actually referring to titles in the Trinity here. Right? Scripture does not and cannot contradict itself. Right? If you realize the context that Isaiah was 700 years before the New Testament, so it was 700 years before God the Son came and about 733 years before God the Spirit was sent out in full, to think that Isaiah was making a statement about the Trinity is reading an Old Testament passage with New Testament glasses that Isaiah would not have had. What Isaiah is doing is he's expressing the roles that Jesus as the Messiah would fulfill. And so again, what does this title mean? Well, I did some fun reading this week, right? And I read multiple different viewpoints from multiple really smart people who love Jesus, whose opinion I trust, whose theology is conservative, and all their explanations were a little bit different. Right? Some suggested that Jesus was the father of eternity, that as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, he was the first fruits to bring a whole harvest of resurrection and eternal life for all. Others noted that the Jews often referred to the king as the father of a nation, and since Jesus will reign and rule forever, he will be an eternal father. Others mentioned that this will be, it will be by his care that both the children of Israel and the Gentiles will be adopted into the family of God forever, therefore becoming their eternal father. And another said, since all persons in the Trinity are united in essence, being they are all God, that Jesus will fill that title by being fully God and fully man. And you know what? Every single one of them is right. The reason that Jesus is given 198 names in the Bible is because he's so great, so sovereign, so mighty, so all-encompassing that there doesn't exist a title for him that could ever cover fully who he is. And not only could Jesus have endless titles, but there would be multiple ways that he would fulfill each title, precisely because you cannot contain him. He is that big a deal. Charles Spurgeon's remarks on this verse are, are nice. He says, how complex is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Almost in the same breath, the prophet calls him a child and a counselor, a son and the everlasting father. It is a mighty marvel that he who was an infant should be at the same time infinite, and that he who is in the divine trinity, always called the son, should nevertheless be correctly called the everlasting father. I promise you, I'm not looking for an escape hatch this morning when I say we wouldn't ever fully grasp the meaning and full weight of this title. But rather than trying to get lost in the weeds and define it specifically, I'd like to focus on the clear heart behind it. 
the mission, the implication, and the realities that it leads to. And for that, we, get, we see the clearest picture in Galatians 4. Look at me again in Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. It says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Right? The first reality is this, is that eternity came to us. This has been our focus all month long. This is why we've made such a big deal about this. The son given to us, the child who would be born for us, that Isaiah prophesied about, was none other than God himself. Colossians 1 verse 19 says God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. We read here in Galatians that when the time came to completion, or maybe your translation said when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, which means this wasn't by accident. At the exact moment of Jesus' arrival was handpicked, ordained, and arranged by God. And I always read scholars talking about why the timing made sense. And they all mention the same reasons, right? It, a lot of it has to do with the peace that existed under the Roman Empire, right? That the roads that they built made it easier to travel. There was one known language throughout the majority of the empire. And on all of that, like, helped the gospel to spread after the church was established. And all that makes sense, right? But here's what else we need to know. God also had 10,000 more reasons for the timing of Jesus' arrival that we don't know about, but we know is this, that it was the perfect time because it was God's plan and God's plans are perfect. And we can carry that forward and we can also know that we, in our own season of waiting, that Jesus will return at the perfect time because it's God's plans and God's plans are perfect. And we may not know every reason why God sent Jesus when he sent them, but he tells us clear in the Bible why he sent Jesus. Verse four, he sent his son born of a woman born under the law. You understand what that verse is saying? It's saying that God had to subject himself to everything that we are subjected to. And so he took on fully our form, embracing humanity, being born to a human mother, and then being born to a Jewish family in the line of David. He was subject to the law that God had given his people that they had been unable to keep for hundreds upon hundreds of years. It's the same law that Gentiles made absolutely no effort to live according to his customs, but all of us are still guilty under the moral implications of it. And so what that verse is saying in first century Jewish language, right, is that God sent his son fully into our condition in every way. And why did he do all that? To redeem those under the law. And boy, do we need to understand how much we need this. Romans chapter 3 says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means we are all guilty of breaking God's good and perfect law. And the reality of that, you might be thinking, well, I've only broke a few. Well, here's what James chapter 2 tells us. Whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. So the reality that I'm a sinner means that I'm guilty of breaking all of God's law. You see, God gave his people his law in the Old Testament in order to lead them into life. Right? All throughout it, God kept promising as he was to get handed to them. He kept promising blessings to those who would adhere to and follow this law. Even the ceremonial aspects that, that we don't have to follow anymore in the New Testament and oftentimes we're, we're quite dismissive of. If you study them, most of them were designed with hygiene and avoiding illness in mind. What God was doing was leading his people into the very best possible life they could have. But ever since sin entered creation, 
Human beings have been cursed with a sinful nature. And so two things kept happening. We failed to live up to the law, breaking its commands and therefore being guilty in the face of it. And secondly, that made what was meant for life actually bring death and a curse. Romans 7, Paul writes of this law, the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me because our sinful nature could not live up to it. But that's the thing about God. He was insistent on giving us life. And so he sent Jesus. Jesus told, him, told us that's why he came. John 10, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. God, the creator, wants us to have life, and he wants us to have life to the fullest, and he wants us to have life forever. And so he sent Jesus to take on our form, to be under the law, also as verse 5 puts it, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as God's sons or daughters. He came to make us God's children. Right, you see, because of our guilt, we've got some really major issues. Because we're all guilty in the law, here's the ramifications of that for us according to the scriptures. Number one, we have been separated from the God who made us. Number two, that means I owe God a debt that I cannot pay in and of myself. And number three, if our debt is not paid, and I just told you that we cannot pay it, then we face an eternal death forever and a suffering in hell. And number four, instead of being God's children, we are actually rebellious and hostile against him in our minds and actions. And Jesus said on multiple occasions that we are slaves to sin and our father is actually the devil. Right? And what this means is that the Bible has nothing, and hear me when I say this, nothing good to say about our state before God apart from Jesus Christ. But the good news is this, it is full of tremendously good news about our state before God if we believe in Jesus. Let's look at the most famous verse in the Bible, right? You see these signs held up at games all the time, John three sixteen. It says, God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There's a reason that's the most famous verse in the Bible. That is beautiful, right? That's a beautiful concept. It's fully true. God sent Jesus to save us, not to condemn us. He sent Jesus to grant us eternal life, not to, not to send us to hell. His motivation for all this was his unabashed love for us. It's all beautiful. But there's another reality that we need to be clear on because John 3 doesn't stop in verse 17. It continues in verse 18. That anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe, and listen to this, is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You don't see that verse being held up at football games, do you? It's not as fun, but it tells us why Jesus came. God sent his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, not to condemn us, not to send us to hell, not to find us guilty. That was not his purpose in coming. One, he came to save us from all that. And number two, he didn't have to. Even if that somehow was God's motivation, which the Bible is clear it was not, he wouldn't have to do any of it because we've done it all on our own. Our resting state is guilty. All on my own, I'm already condemned. All on my own, I've already fallen short of God's standard. All on my own, I deserve his wrath for all eternity. But God loved us so much, he chased us down. 
He inserted himself into our humanity under the same law. He felt our weaknesses, came to our darkness. He faced our temptations and he remained sinless so that when he went to the cross, he not only fulfilled the law through his sinless life, but he took the penalty of it with his death. So that if we believe in him, we are forgiven in full of all our sins and we are redeemed and reconciled back to the God who made us and we are no longer guilty under the law as Jesus' righteousness is now given to us and we go from being hostile and separated from God, we go from being a slave to sin and a children of the devil to being adopted as God's sons and daughters and this adoption is forever. This is how Jesus is our eternal father. He does not bring us into his family for a short while. It's not a trial basis to see if we bring something to the table and can add to the family. He brings us into his family forever. It's something not even our physical death that will end. Look at verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. As children of God, we become heirs. I want you to understand that language. We become co-heirs with Christ. And the Bible is clear as to what Jesus gets in the end. And I'll just spoil it for you. It's everything. He gets it all. Life forever. He reigns forever. Evil will be vanquished. Grief, loss, pain, separation, and death will be no more. And that is our future if you're in Jesus Christ this morning. That is your future if you're his children You do not become his child by doing works. You do not become his child by attending church. You do not become his child by checking things off a list or saying magical words. You become his child all by faith. John 1 says, to all who did receive him, just simply receive, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. It's the simplest of recognitions. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I've done nothing to deserve heaven. I've done nothing to deserve life. I've done nothing to to earn forgiveness. And Jesus loved me so much that he did all the work for me. He was sinless. I'm not. He died in my place. I couldn't pay my price. He paid my debt. I couldn't do that. He rose from the grave. I have no chance of that. And so I trust fully and exclusively in Jesus Christ to save me and forgive me. And I give my life and my future and my eternity in full surrender to his power, his love, his authority, and his grace. You do that, and you will have eternal life. You do that, and death will have no more hold of you. In Christ, you will have an answer to every ounce of suffering, every tragic event that ever happens to you, every parting, all grief, all sorrow, all loss. They don't win anymore. Precisely because the eternal God came to us to adopt us into his family for all eternity. And so let's start right there. If you have not yet become a child of God today, go all in. Believe in Jesus Christ. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your truth. Stop trusting in your control. Stop clinging to that thing that you think is more important or more valuable than Jesus. I promise you it can never save you. And call out to Jesus Christ in faith and ask him to save you today. And he will precisely because he loves you like that. He will precisely because he's already done all the work and paid the price. And he will because all it takes is faith. He's done the rest. So call out to him today in faith. Number two, The other reality to this is simply this, just run to your father. 
Look at verse 6 again. It says, because you are sons, and you can read in there, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is the Greek, the Aramaic word for, for, for father, or is what a child would call his dad. God, that, that verse is telling us that God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us. God the Son sent God the Spirit to dwell in us. And that Spirit, when he is not quenched, leads us to cry out, Abba, Father, to our eternal God. That Spirit, when he's not quenched, reminds us of our adoption and reminds us of our place in God's family sealed forever. And the reason why that's especially relevant this morning is because this time of year, just being the holiday, just being Christmas, It has this uncanny ability to take whatever you're feeling and amplify it. It has this uncanny ability to take whatever you're feeling and magnify it. So if if life is hard for you right now, today makes it harder. If life is difficult for you right now, today and tomorrow will make it even more difficult. That's the reality. And my plea to you is this. Allow God's spirit within you, if you're in Jesus Christ, to remind you of your adoption, remind you you are not alone. You have been brought into the family of God. You are connected with your creator forever. Your future is very bright. Because God, your Abba Father, is with you right now. His presence has never left you, and so seek it out. Dwell in it abundantly. Let him carry you. No matter, no matter how great the darkness you're facing, no matter how deep the valley, no matter how overwhelming the grief, he alone has the answer that trumps it all. The kids being up here seeing this one reminded me of something that I went to last week. Last week, I went to the Christmas program over here at Rio Grande Elementary School. And just, if, if you don't know me, here's all you need to know. Christmas programs, they're just not my scene, okay? And I'd like to explain that for you, right? There's, there's large crowds of people showing up like 45 minutes before an event starts. That doesn't, I don't grasp that, right? You get in the room. There's not enough room for everyone. People are fighting over seats. Once the program starts, people are just standing up in front of you, blocking your view, right? Then there's choir music. You can have whatever preference music you like. Listen to it. Choir music is just not my thing, right? And then all that just brings flashbacks of all the elementary programs I had to do as a child. You throw that all in one pot. It's basically my nightmare, Okay? But I fought through all of it. And for five minutes, absolutely none of that mattered. Because for five minutes, I spotted in the third row um, Remy and Rhea, my twin six-year-old daughters. And I watched them intently. I watched them sing. I watched them go through their motions. I watched them recite everything they learned. And my eyes were glued on them. And they did not move. And there was an undeniable smile on my face, an undeniable welling up of emotion in my body. Why? Because they are my girls. Because they're mine. And that changes everything. And I was driving home, and the thought hit me that that is a mere shred of how God the Father feels about his children. As Jesus puts it once, if that's how you, as evil fathers, as selfish, sinful fathers, take care of your children, how much more... How much more does your heavenly father love you? If that's how I feel, and I'm as selfish and sinful as they come, if that's how I feel about my children, think about the love that a perfect God has for me. So his love pursued us. His love came for us. His love died for us. In his love, he redeems us and adopts us. And his love and his presence will never, ever, ever leave us, especially when we need it most. So praise his name forevermore.
We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to close this service with a couple songs in response. You just get to worship the God who came, who came on a mission to pursue us and redeem us. Before we do that, we're going to give you a chance to spend just with him, to literally dwell in his presence, what I invited you to do a couple moments ago. There's going to be some help for you in the screens if you need it, but this is just your time to, to, to reflect and meditate on the love of God that caused him to take on our form, to take on our flesh, to endure our weaknesses, endure our pain, and go the cross for us. That is how he loves you this morning. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I can think of no better day than today for you to call him to faith. And if you have that no matter what you're facing, let his spirit remind you this morning of your adoption and let it lead you to the place where you're crying out, Abba, Father, to your God who loves you so much. This is your time with him.